coming up next on Thriving in Recovery. Circumstances ended up happening to where I had to drop out of college. My mother had a very, very severe stroke. Um, she was hospitalized for almost a month. My dad wasn't taking it well. You know, that was another reason that my dad drove into his addiction, you know, and just started drinking more heavily. So I went to work, you know, I got a job, you know, at Walmart to try to help pay the bills and it didn't work out that way. I was never home. I started hanging out with people all over again. I started linking up with old friends from, you know, before I got into trouble when I was 14 and started hanging out with them and started going down that path all over again and just started drinking every weekend, going to parties, having parties at friends' house. And I, I started to see my life going from somebody who I thought I was going to be to dropping right back down to the person I thought I was going to be when I was a teenager all over again. Welcome back to the Thriving in Recovery podcast, where we bring you the stories that inspire change and give hope. Today, we're joined by Evan Manley, a beacon of hope in the recovery community. Evan's journey is one of resilience and dedication. As he continues to build his professional repertoire in aiding those battling substance use disorder, his approach is both innovative and deeply empathetic. With a passion for service and a heart for transformation, Evan is not just helping people to recover, he's helping them to rediscover their purpose. Join us as we delve into Evan's story, his strategies for success, and how he's turning the tide in the fight against addiction. Evan, welcome to the show, man. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm super stoked. I know just just before we logged on and uh, started recording this, it's been better part of a year that we've been trying to get you on this podcast. So I'm super stoked that you're here and in person in the studio. So welcome, dude. Well, thank you. Yeah, man. Let's uh, let's just jump right in. So give us a little background about who you are and what led you to be at the point that you are at in your life today currently. Okay. So a little bit about me is, so I'm Evan. I'm 34 years old. I have been in uh, long-term recovery for almost four and a half years. Um, you know, I grew up in a household where drugs and alcohol were very prevalent. Um, I grew up thinking it was normal, you know, to, to be drinking at an early age, you know, and using substances. So I was a troubled kid. Um, you know, I didn't really listen to my parents. I was getting into trouble, you know, throughout all my grade school years, um, to the point where when I was 14, my parents had put me on probation for incorrigibility, which means I didn't listen to them. What do you mean put you on probation? Like with the courts and shit? Yeah, they uh, were calling the police on me all the time for just like acting out and all my behaviors and acting really violent with my mom, my dad, and my brothers. So they had to call the police multiple times and they got to the point to where the police even told them like you might want to take him to um, judicial, you know, juvenile judicial courts um, and see what they say. And they put me on a three-month probation to where I had to meet with the judge. I had a probation officer. And that three years stretched out to seven years because I just kept getting in more and more trouble with the law. Um, kept violating probation to the point to where the uh, felonies that I had committed when I was a juvenile, 
I was looking at, if I was getting charged as an adult, I would have been looking at 15 years Damn. charged as an adult. But I was fortunate enough to where when I, the crimes, when I committed them, I was 13, not 14. I was 14 when I was sentenced. So, and this was back in Michigan. So Michigan laws uh, mandated that any juvenile when the crimes are committed under the age of 14, they had to be sentenced and tried as a juvenile. So I got lucked out on that. I was so if you're 14 and they try you in Michigan, you're charged as an adult. If the if the crimes are big enough, yeah. Damn, that's crazy. Sorry to interrupt. Go ahead. Nope. So I got sentenced to a uh, kind of like a reform school for uh, adolescent uh, male juveniles, um, and I ended up spending t just over two years there out of a 12 month sentence because I just didn't complete the program. I wasn't taking anything what the counselors and everybody was saying there. I wasn't taking it serious at all. And I ended up going to court with the court expecting to release me back to my parents. And they found out I hadn't even started the program. So they looked at me and they're like, we are going to give you one last chance to complete this 12 months or you are it's going to be reverted and you can actually be sentenced as an adult at that point so i it was a little bit of a reality check at that point so i started taking it a little bit more serious like within i think like three months i became like a leader within you know the the house that i was in with 14 boys i became a leader among them um and i started doing it and when i went to court expecting you know to be graduating in two weeks they decided to just release me back home they're like we've spent too much money on you too much taxpayer money we've tried so much so you're gonna continue your probation from home and i was 16 at that time um went back home to my parents house my parents decided to up and move to a different town in michigan to kind of tried to separate me from my old life, you know, keep me away from the people that I was getting in trouble with, you know, the ones that were bringing me down and ones I was bringing down. So we tried, you know, a whole new setting, a whole new, you know, group of friends, everything. And it was going pretty good for four months. <laughs> um, and then I started hanging out with the wrong crowd again. You know, as addicts, we all know it. Um, how do I say it? Geographical relocation does not equal out to recovery right. in any form. Totally. You know, so I still found a group of people that I thought were cool and I felt cool with and just started getting in trouble again all over. And were you doing drugs at this point? I was actually, yes, I was. I started, um, hanging out with one of my older brothers, going over to his apartment on the weekends and drinking and smoking weed and just partying with my big brother, you know? Doing what the cool kids are doing. <laughs> That's what I thought, yeah. yeah. So that lasted, let me see, I'm about 17 at this time. I drop out of high school because I was getting in so much trouble. They expelled me for the rest of the school year and just decided, uh, well, I don't really want to go to school anymore. I would rather sit at home, play video games, and smoke weed with my old brother. But the school gave me one another opportunity to better myself. So 
the school board in Niles, Michigan met and made a big decision that ended up helping me. You know, they decided to allow me to take my GED a year early, right? So I'm not even a, a senior in high school yet, and they're allowing me to take my GED. And so I started studying, I did all the practice tests, and when it came time to take the test, I nailed it. You know, I um, scored higher than 80% of the graduating seniors did on their SATs and ACTs. And I was in the top, I want to say 10 percentile in physics. Nice. So I um, decided, okay, I'm actually smarter than I think, you know, so I'll try to give college a try. So I became a full-time freshman in college when I was supposed to be a senior in high school. And it's funny to think about it now, what I originally went to college for. I uh, sat down with my mom one night and I was like, I think I want to be a cop. How funny is that? It was. And my mom just looked at me and she said, honestly, you have, there's two outcomes to you being a cop. You're either going to be an amazing cop because you can actually will be able to help people who are in situations or you're going to be a dirty cop because you know how to break the laws now without getting caught. So it was a kind of a little lapping moment to think about, but so I did it. Um, and I was getting excellent grades in classes. Um, one of the teachers that I had at Lake Michigan community college, um, I was scoring so high in his class for introduction to the criminal justice that he set up ride-alongs for me with the Michigan State Police, the local sheriffs, uh, local PD, and the Department uh, of Natural Resources, so the, the fishing cops, you know. And I did all ride-alongs with them, and I was like, you know what? Out of all of them, I want to be, you know, Department of Natural Resources. Hell yeah, dude, a fishing cop. Fuck yeah. Yeah, and then I was in the one of the guys asked me, he's like, well, why do you want to do this job? I was like, well, I love fishing. I love hunting. I love snowmobiling. I love doing all this stuff. And he's like, well, this isn't the job for you. If you love all that stuff, the, those are the busiest times of the year where you don't get to enjoy fishing. You don't get to enjoy hunting because you're working 12 hours a day, sun up, sun down, seven days a week. And I was thought about it and I was like, well, I might, might try it. But circumstances ended up happening to where I had to drop out of college. My mother had a very, very severe stroke. Um, she was hospitalized for almost a month. My dad wasn't taking it well. You know, that was another reason that my dad drove into his addiction, you know, and just started drinking more heavily. So I went to work. You know, I got a job, you know, at Walmart to try to help pay the bills. And it didn't work out that way. I was never home. I started hanging out with people all over again. I started linking up with old friends from, you know, before I got into trouble when I was 14 and started hanging out with them and started going down that path all over again and just started drinking every weekend, going to parties, having parties at friends' house. And I, I started to see my life going from somebody who I thought I was going to be to dropping right back down to the person I thought I was going to be when I was a teenager all over again. You know, it started to scare me a little bit. And then I got a job when I was 20 years old, first warehouse job back in Michigan, because I mean, that's all pretty much that's out there. If you want a decent paying job, you're going to work in the warehouse industry. So I got a job and it was overnights. I was used to staying up all night partying. So this is, this is no problem. Well, 
it didn't work out that well. And I started doing harder, you know, substances, you know, I started taking my fiance at the time, I was starting to take her prescription pills to keep me awake all night. And I was mixing that with like the stacker pills and three monsters in a night to the point to where I was up for three days working, spending all my money, still partying it up on the weekends. That lasted about a year. And she finally realized where all of her pills were going. So that caused a rift between me and her. And we ended up um, splitting up. So I went back to my parents' house for a little bit, bounced out, you know, to another new girlfriend's house for about a year. And, you know, I was still back at a party and every weekend, just going, living, you know, thought I was just living the life, you know, I'm 22 years old and this is what 22 year olds do. Right. And then after that ended, I ended up back at my parents' house, you know, spent a lot of time there, spent some weekends with some friends, partying a little bit, but not as much. How, what, what was it like? going from like partying all the time to not as much was it just the move back in with your family that's what did it like a little more structure or like a little bit a little bit more structure but it was more of in my household it's you're going to do what you do but it's going to be be behind closed doors mm -hmm. we don't talk about stuff like that we don't talk about the addiction we don't talk about the childhood trauma we don't we don't talk about this we act like it never existed right so it, for me that was easy you know, I was already really good at keeping everything in and pushing it under the rug and just moving on to the next. So after, you know, being at my parents' house for, I want to say close to a year after that, my parents came to me and said, um, so at the end of next month, which it would have been October, 2013, they told me, me and your dad are moving to Colorado. Your brothers are out there, um, your niece is out there. So we're going to go out there. You can either come with us or you can stay out here. And at first I was like, well, you guys have fun out there. I'm going to stay out here. So I talked with one of my buddies who had like the definition of a party house, right? He converted his whole basement into a nightclub pretty much for everybody. So I was like, Hey, can I like post up in the corner of your basement? You know, until I can find a, you know, find some good work and I'll get out on my own. Plus, I'm trying to enroll back in school at another college for business. I'll be able to, you know, pitch in some money. And he's like, oh, yeah, no problem. That lasted about three weeks. And he realized only thing I was interested in was partying and girls. That's all I cared about at that time. So he came to me and he's like, hey, I need you to leave. Like, it's this isn't working out. You said you're going to do this. You said you're going to do that. I don't see you doing anything but just partying and having sex with all these different chicks, man. He's like, I'm trying to like move my life in a different direction. So I was like, all right, cool. Have fun. Didn't let him know how mad I was. And I went right to my mom and I was like, fuck this. I am moving to Colorado with you. Nice. So I ended up staying there and I kind of just like distant myself from all those people and when it came to the night before we left, I had so much anxiety about moving to somewhere where I have no clue about. I'm not going to have anybody out there. I'm going to have my family. Yeah, but, you know, everything gets pushed under. So I went out and got hammered the night before leaving. Like, I think I stumbled in the door 
10 minutes before everybody was waking up to hit the road. And I slept the whole drive from Michigan to Colorado. And when I got out here, yeah, I was a little nervous. I was a little anxious, but one of my older brother caught my older brother's Kyle, you know, ever since as a kid, I always looked up to him. He was always my hero, no matter what wrong he did, no matter, you know, even when he went to prison, he was always still my hero. So when I got out here, first couple of nights, he's like, all right, you're going to come hang out with me. I'm like, cool. I know somebody. Was this the brother you, that you were partying with? Yes. Okay. <laughs> yes, it was. And the first thing he did is, is we're going to a bar. I'm like, all right, cool. I've been pre-gaming for this yeah. <laughs> for, the, for months. I'm set. Well, nobody told me about the altitude change, <laughs> the, the effect of alcohol in your system with the altitude change, right? So I think it was like a beer and a shot, and I was... I was gone. I think I had to be carried out of the bar by two of my brothers and put in the car and they just left me there for like an hour so they could go finish. So I was like, all right, ah, there, there, there's no preparing for this. So when, um, over the next few months after this, I ended up getting a really good job at this auto part warehouse in Inglewood. And over, you know, in a matter of a year and a half, I went from living in my parents' apartment in the spare bedroom to I have my own car now. I have money saved up to where I got my own apartment. Um, had a great job that I was moving up, you know, the ladder of leadership into that um, organization. And, you know, life was looking really looking up for me. Were you still like drinking at this time too? Like partying like a little bit? Not much, a little bit. I was on a, a soft, slow pitch softball team okay. and you know, a couple beers during practice, a couple beers during the game, maybe a shooter, you know. Was there like an event that happened in between that time that you got here and you were drinking with your brother to like what you just talked about now? Like you're not drinking as much or was the time basically since you've gone to, gotten to Colorado, was it like pretty reduced uh, amount of use? It was pretty reduced. Yeah. You know, I didn't really know that many people and the 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 friends I ended up gaining, you know, gaining out here were actually really good friends. You know, they didn't party that much. They had families, you know, like it was guys I worked with, you know, and people that I met through softball that they had kids, they had wives, they had families. So, you know, going out to the bar, having a beer or two was starting to become my normal at that point, yep. you know, and I never liked the feeling of alcohol. That's what was like crazy was, is I was drinking so much, but I hated the feeling of it. I hated the dizziness. I hated the taste of it, to be honest. So I like watered all my drinks down, you know? And so the biggest catalyst for me that, you know, really took my life from seeming, you seemingly doing pretty good to a downward spiral that was almost a direct shot down was the introduction of cocaine, mm -hmm. you know, at a buddy's house. He had a friend who came over and they had a friend come over and someone had cocaine, you know, I had never really tried cocaine. I've tried, I tried other stuff before, but I was like, all right, I'll give it a try. One time, all it took after that, my, all my paychecks were going to that, you know, rapidly to the point of after three months, everybody's seen a giant difference in me. You right. know, my attitude had changed. I was coming more irritable. I was distant. And you could just see like in my face, it all sunk in. And that lasted about, I want to say close to a year before, you know, 
that drug wasn't strong enough. It was too expensive. So it led me down to a road to trying meth, you know, and after I tried that, yeah, you know, at the time I was like, okay, this kind of feels good, but I didn't touch it for six months, you know, and I, at this time, you know, uh, I had my son in my life, you know, at this time he's about one years old, amazing little boy. You know, I have him every weekend, we're going out and doing things. And after, I can't remember the exact moment that it happened that everything started really spiraling. But the only time that I can actually remember how bad it started getting was one, I had some friends come over, you know, they're bad into, you know, the meth scene, they're, they're dealing, they're using, you know, I was giving them rides, you know, and just getting something thrown to me here and there. And I let them come and stay at my house for a few days. You know, they had nowhere to go. I felt bad. I'm like, come and stay with me. You know, a couple of days, get back on your feet, get a hotel room, whatever. Well, that couple of days lasted two and a half weeks. And only thing we that's the only thing we were doing. You know, it was starting to get to the point to where my life was starting to revolve around that. You know, I needed it to go to work. I needed it to get through the day. You know, it started with um, just doing it before work and then I would have friends come up and I'd do it on my lunch break. And now, hey, I need a little bit to make it through on my breaks to the point where at the end of, you know, my trip, you know, at my job, I was going out every 20 minutes to get high just so I don't fall asleep standing up again. And this downward spiral just kept happening, you know, but in my mind, I'm not that bad, you know. Even when I had my boss coming up to me, looking at me and telling me, you look sprung out. What's going on? Oh, nothing, nothing. I'm just tired. I'm okay. I'm good. I still show up to work. Even if it's four hours late, I still show up to work. I still work while I'm here, you know, and just that continuous, you know, pattern, thought pattern in my head of, okay, you're really not that bad. You're really not that bad. These people are just seeing what they want to see. I'm really not that bad. And it got to a point to where I started dating this girl and that's what her life was about. So I was like, cool. I have someone I can get high with. There's someone I can have in my bed every night. No problem. And it got to the point to where I lost my job. I got evicted from my apartment. Me and her are living out of a U-Haul van, you know, and homeless. Um, I don't have my son in my life because I told my mom what I was doing at one point. She tried to help me. I stayed with him for about 10 days. And my dad thought he had this great idea to help me get back on my feet. He's like, you have a 401k, cash it out. Use it to, to get a car, use it to, you know, to get on your feet. So I'm like, okay, I could do that. As soon as the check got delivered to FedEx, I left. I was gone, I cashed it on like seven grand. I'm gonna have some fun. And that seven grand does not last last that long. Not you're long paying when you're paying for you and four other people to be in a hotel room to have all the drugs you want, to have all the booze you want, that goes very fast. Two and a half months, I am broke. I'm living in a, a U-Haul van that I rented for two days and I've had for two and a half months. You know, avoiding any spot where there's a U-Haul location, avoiding it. Until I had the bright idea of, I have a storage unit 
a U-Haul, and I'm pretty sure I have some valuable stuff in there. I don't have the key anymore, but I have a, uh, a bolt cutter. Let's go break into my own storage unit. It's not breaking and entering. It's my storage unit. My parents are paying for it, so it's mine. So I go over to the storage unit, and I can't get the lock to break. I, I forgot that I actually got a really good lock that you, it's hard to break, right? So I go back out to the van, and the guy comes out. It was the manager of that location, and he's like, so I ran the play to this, and you've had this and not paid for it, so I'm taking the keys, and we're reporting the stolen. So I looked at him, and I was like, well, you can't really report the stolen because technically you have the keys, so now it's back in your possession. So you can't report it stolen after you have already repossessed it. And he just looked at me all dumbfounded, and then he walks inside, and I'm like, crap, we're going to jail. <laughs> I'm like, crap. I have not been to jail. I'm not. I'm too pretty to go to jail. I don't want to go to jail. So he comes back out and he's like, "We're not reporting it stolen, but we need to get you and all your shit out of this van." I'm like, "All right, cool. It's gonna take a while. There's a lot in here, and well, we're tweakers, so we have to go through everything one by one, <laughs> right?" So, yeah, it took us all night, of course, to do it, and um, you only got half of it done. Oh, we didn't even get half of it done. What are you talking about? We just took everything out and somehow scattered across the whole big parking lot. They left the window down in it, so he just got back in the van and slept in there overnight with a tarp and a little blanket. So they came back in the next morning, and they're furious, right? Like, all of our stuff is scattered from one corner to the other, and it's a, it's a decent-sized parking lot. So he was like, you guys have two hours to get all your stuff and out. And I was like, can I borrow one of your carts then? So we can, you know, just move to the next parking lot. But she was nice enough and he let us do it. So we went to the next parking lot and finished our, you know, tweak session over there. Just going through all of our random stuff. And it was, it was horrible. And I look back at it, it was horrible. It was cold. We stunk, we were hungry. We didn't even really have any drugs left. So, after not long after that me and her kind of just like parted ways like i was to the point to where i'm not taking all of the shit dragging it around anymore i'm taking a backpack full of some stuff that i think is you know necessary to survive right now which it's my coloring books and my markers i don't even need clothes i don't need anything i just need my art stuff because it keeps me busy so after that i spent a year and a half down in Lakewood on West Colfax, mm -hmm. bouncing from hotel to hotel, sleeping in parks if it was warm, sleeping in abandoned houses to the point to where cops would be coming every four days and running us off, you know, and we would go to the next, keep going to the next. And it was this vicious cycle, you know, and at that point I was introduced to the needle, you know, I got onto that and man, I was stealing from stores constantly to either get clothes, to get food, or I was boosting so I can go and trade it. Yep. So I started uh, getting a, a rap sheet with a local PD to the point where one of the last times I got arrested, I had nine active warrants from three cases because I kept having failure to appear as to court. I know that experience. So I would get picked up. Give, I mean, the first time, so I got picked up for petty theft and shoplifting. I was given a ticket. So you have 30 days, you know, before your court hearing. So I'm like, all right, whatever, I'll go to court. 
Well, in those 30 days, I kept getting caught shoplifting. So more charges. And then I, I wasn't going to any of those court appearances until the finally I got picked up and they're like, well, you have nine warrants. So, you know, you keep getting arrested and you keep getting released on PR bonds. So you're going to get arrested again and you'll go and see a judge. So in my mind is, nah, I'll get another PR bond. Well, the judge didn't think of it that way at this time that she looked at me and she was like, okay, you want us to give you another PR bond after we've already given you two, you have not appeared at any one of your court dates. So not going to give you a PR bond. We are going to give you a, a bond. And I was like, well, I'm homeless. I don't work. I don't have any money. I can't pay the bond. I'm, I doubt my family would pay, you know, a thousand dollars to get me out because they just know exactly what I would do. So spent some time in lovely uh, Jefferson County jail. Um, I don't recommend anybody to use that. It's not a good vacation spot. It's not a good spot. It is not. It's not fun. So I ended up spending um, 120 days um, there. They sentenced me to 120 days for all charges, but to run consecutive concurrent so, concurrent yeah. so all all at once yep so i got out i was on a got sentenced to a year of unsupervised probation which means i just have to go to court every three months i don't have a probation officer i just meet with the judge let them know what i'm doing they or i thought you know it would help me get out of jail by telling them hey i'm addicted to drugs you know i don't think jail's best maybe some treatment even though i never intended to go to treatment um, so they court ordered me for some sort of substance abuse classes and I kept postponing it, kept postponing it, kept postponing it. And so I got in trouble for another shoplifting charge, didn't go to court. So I was like, cause I was thinking, I was like, if I go to court, I'm going to be in violation of probation. They're going to throw me back in jail. I'm just not going to go to court this time. I'm not going to go to my, uh, pretrial services, nothing. So I decided to relocate from Lakewood all the way up to North Federal in Adams County, thinking it's not that bad of a warrant. They probably won't find me there. Well, what happened was is so I ended up getting in contact with the one of the girls that I, you know, in my apartment where I let her come and stay for a few days and her and her sister stayed for a few weeks. I got back in contact with her. So she came up. You know, I was trying to sell her a jersey, you know, and she ended up not wanting to buy the jersey. So we went to McDonald's, grabbed some food. She brought me back over by the hotel I was staying at to drop me off. Um, and she just gave me a little bag, you know, like, you know, here. Next thing I know, we have six Adams County sheriffs surrounding us. Um, so we're all, they we all get pulled out at gunpoint. They are searching the car. They're not finding anything. They search all of us. They don't find anything at first. So I'm thinking, okay, we might be able to get out of this. And then I remember, Evan, you have an active warrant in Jefferson County. Okay. So I have two options. I can either tell him my name, go to jail, get, you know, get searched again, get pop, pop for another possession charge, or I can give them my brother's name. Well, I think I'm smart and I'm like, okay, I don't want to go to jail. I'm going to give my brother's name. It's worked before. 
They don't actually run the name or they just run the name and they don't see a picture. I have all the information I need. Well, Adams County is a little bit smarter. They actually run the name, pull up my brother's driver's license and see me and him are definitely not the same person. So they came up to me and they're like, the, um, this young lady is good to go. No active warrant. She's cleared. Get, let her get in her van and go. This young lady has an active warrant. So we're going to be taking her in. And this gentleman, we are going to be holding until we can figure out who he really is. So they pull me to the side and they're like, okay, what's your name? We're going to give you one last chance. What is your name? I told him again. So they bring me up to the car. They turn the screen inside the car and they're like, okay, so this is you, huh? You, you must have lost a lot of weight. And <laughs> Okay. I'm like, oh, crap. I'm like, okay, fine. My name is Evan Manley. Here's my birthday. Here's my social security number so you can verify. So they're like, why did we give your – why did you give a, a, your, a fake name? I was like, technically, it's not a fake name. It's just my brother's name. It's just not mine. So the officer looks at me and he's like, all right, if you be a smart ass, I will get you with another charge. Why didn't you give your name? I was like, well, I have an active warrant in Jeffco, and I didn't want to go back to jail. He's like, well, now you're going to jail with an extra charge, and you will wait until Jeffco comes and picks you up. So then he searches me again, and he ends up finding the baggie this time. So I'm trying to come up with anything to not get another possession charge. I'm yelling at the officer saying, you planted it on me. This officer just searched me, and he found nothing. So how do you find something? And the officer looks um, at me and he was like, well, when I patted you down, I literally patted you down. I didn't check your pockets. I was making sure you didn't have any weapons. When you're getting taken into custody, they go through your pockets to see what you have on you. So I go to Adams County and I get charged with felony impersonation and a felony drug charge. And I'm thinking to myself, well, I am really screwed this time. All my other drug charges were misdemeanors because it was either paraphernalia or it was just a little bit of powder. Not nothing like this. So again, I'm thinking I have never had a PR bond in Adams County. Maybe I'll get a PR bond. Nope. They pulled up. They're like, he is a flight risk. He never attends courts. We need to keep him here on a no bond hold. So they kept me on a no bond hold. And luckily they dropped all the charges down to uh, misdemeanors. And the judge sentenced me to 60 days and he looked at me and was like, I would have given you 30 days if you would have given your name. But since you gave a fake name, it made something, it was aggravated in a way. So I had to do 60 days. So I ended up having to wait another 10 days for Jeffco to even come and get me. So while I was waiting in Adams County, it was not like it was in Jeffco. In Jeffco, I knew people, you know, people I knew on the streets. So I was a little more comfortable. Well, in Adams County, I didn't know anybody. Nobody liked me. I think I got into like three fights. And one time I got beaten up and put into the hospital wing, getting out of the shower. So they ended up having to transfer me to a whole nother pod to where I was locked down in an actual cell instead of in caves. And I am just made so depressed at this point that I'm contemplating whether if I want to even live anymore or not, you know, and I remember sitting, sitting there and the first time he, while I was there, almost 70 days, 
I get a letter in the mail. I finally get a letter. Somebody knows I'm here. And it was from my mother. And she was, you know, in the letter, she was telling me, I know where you've been this whole time. I know we haven't come and visit you. I know we have, I haven't written you. I know we haven't put money on your books, but we just can't keep doing this with you. Every other time when you're in jail, we come and visit you. We put money on your phone. We put money on your books so you can have some commissary. We make it comfortable for you. And for the first time, I wanted you to feel uncomfortable. I wanted to see if you could actually feel alone. And now I'm writing you to let you know that we are here for you. And I know you're getting transferred to Jefferson County. And when you get there, give me a call and we can actually talk. And as I'm reading this, I am sobbing. I mean, like uncontrollably crying because everything in that letter, she was saying everything that I was feeling. I did feel alone. I did feel absolutely at the lowest point that I have ever felt in my life. I wrote her back begging her for help. And I remember telling her in the first letter, I know I have said this so many times. I know I told you, you know, X amount of times that I want help and I'll do everything and you help me and I run. I don't want to run anymore. I don't want to die. I didn't hear anything back. So I wrote her another letter, you know, with even more emotion, you know, like I am sorry for all the things that I said to you when I was out there because you wouldn't give me any money or you wouldn't get me a hotel room. I am sorry for who I have become. And I'm sorry that I took everything out on you. I'm sorry that I blamed you for all of this when you were just trying to be there for me, when you were just trying to be a mom. And I got transferred over to Jeffco. And the first thing I did when I hit the intake pod and when I was off lockdown, I called my mom. And I break down crying on the phone to her, begging her for help. And I remember her telling me, so your dad is going to be there at your four, first court appearance tomorrow. And he's going to be at your other court appearance as well. So I'm like, all right. So my first court appearance was for Lakewood Municipal, but it's all done virtual. So I didn't get to see my dad in the courtroom. So later that day, or no, it was the next day. The next day I had court and golden in the morning. So I get brought in in my shackles and I look over and I see my dad sitting right there. And he doesn't look, he doesn't look mad. He doesn't look disappointed. He actually looks worried because when he looked at me, I weighed, at that time, I weighed about 135 pounds. I'm 6'2". That is skinny. Like, my face and cheeks are sunk in. You can see my ribs. Like, I am literally, you know, way below weight. Like, I looked like I had cancer and I was dying. So, a lady walks up to me and she ends up being my attorney and... She says, I don't have any of your paperwork because I have not been expecting to see you for another week and a half. So since we're here, I'm going to just go in there and I'm going to talk to them and see what we can do for you. So I let her know that Lakewood Municipal the day before gave me a PR bond, but I'm here until I figure out what's going on here. And she looks at me, she's like, they gave you a PR bond. I'm like, yep, they gave me my third PR bond. I don't know how, I don't know why, but they gave me a PR bond. So she goes out, talks to my dad, and goes out and talks to the DA. 
comes back about 30 minutes later and she's like, all right, I have good news and I have bad news for you. So um, my heart's just dropping. I'm like, all right, so I'm going to be sitting in jail. Okay. Tell me for how long. And they said, um, that they were going to give me time. They are going to recommend me to have time served on the stipulation that I go to my parents' house and follow all their rules. And I show up to court that next Monday morning at Lakewood Municipal. So I'm like, okay, what's the bad news? And they're like, that's the thing is you have to show up to court. If you don't show up to court, you are going to get a warrant and you will, you're going to spend a lot of time in jail for this. So I'm like, all right, I'll do it. So I, uh, go out of the courtroom and in Jefferson County from the courthouse back to the jail, there's that underground tunnel. <clears throat> I am so excited. I'm getting out of jail that day. Like I start, forget I'm in shackles, right? Not just like around the waist, but the ankles too. I try to run. I fall. I crack a rib. Yeah. It was, it was hilarious. They showed me the video later. It was, yeah. Um, so I'd love to get that footage. I asked them. I actually, I asked them for that, and they said legally they can't give it to me because it is county property. But they were sitting there watching it, and I'm like, "Oh, come on! I want to send this in, man. I want to win a million dollars for this." So that broken rib made it to where I couldn't get released on the first wave of releases. I had to get released last because they had to check me out by the doctors, the nurses, and everything to make sure I wouldn't sue them. So. I finally get released. It's like 11 o'clock at night, right? And Golden, when you get um, released from like Golden, you're normally released by like 1 or 2 in the afternoon. It's 10 o'clock at night. I get a letter in my property from the sergeant saying, wait for your mother. I was seeing that and I was like, okay, that's weird. So I go out. I have to go out the back door because the front door is locked. So I go out and I see everybody else's family is waiting for him. I don't see anybody. So my first instinct and the first thing crosses my mind is light rails over there, run. You're going to go get high. So I start sprinting it and I see my mom walk out of between cars. So I beeline it over to her. And she tells me that her and my dad had been waiting for almost 10 hours you know, taking turns waiting for me to be released because they knew if they weren't there, and I had to wait, I would not be there when they got there. Right. So I'm under the impression that my parents are putting me in a, in a hotel room for the weekends until court, and then we are going to figure out what to do next. So I'm starting my, my attic brain, starting to make all these plans, right? So I'm planning, okay, I'm going to call these people. I'm gonna, they're going to come over. I'm going to have one last weekend, one last hurrah, and I'm going to take this stuff serious come Monday. So my mom was like, okay, what do you want? And I was like, I want some Wendy's, I want a Mountain Dew, and I want a pack of cigarettes. That's all I want right now. What hotel are you putting me in? She literally stopped the car and stared at me and was like, I'm not putting you in a hotel room. We've tried this. You ran. You're staying on my couch, and you are going to be watched 24-7. So you're going to be watched by me, your brother Jason, and your dad. You're not going to be out of our sights. So I'm like, all right. I'll do it. We get back to their house. I feel so out of place at their place, not because of all this other, you know, past stuff, but it's because I'm in a house. I'm used to either being in a hotel room, being on the streets or being in jail for the last year and a half, almost two years. So I have a couch to sleep on. 
I don't sleep that whole weekend. I can't. Like, I'm too comfortable. I never thought I'd ever say those words as I'm too comfortable. And so my mom comes Sunday. She looks at me. She's like, you want to go to an NA meeting with me? No, I don't. Not really. She's like, well, it's right down the road, so we're going to go check it out. All right, I'll go. So we go. We get there really early. And while we're sitting there, I'm coming up with every excuse why I want to leave. I don't like these people. These look like weirdos. This is a cult. I'm not going to be hugging and crying and talking about my feelings. I'm, that's not who I am. Put me in rehab. I'll be fine. Well, I look at my mom and I was like, can I have a couple of dollars so I can go get something to drink at the gas station? So she gives me five bucks. I go over there. I come back to the car. My mom's not in the car anymore. She's now talking to these people that I was just claiming are these weirdos. And they're like waving me over. Oh, so I'm thinking to myself, well, crap, I got to talk to these people. So I go up, I sit down, my mom's crying. They're talking to me. I honestly still to this day, I can't remember much of anything they were saying. Like at that point, it was in one ear out the end without the other. But the one thing that resonated with me the most was this guy who was standing right there. His name is Brock. And he looks at me, he's like, what's the worst that could happen? This works. So they all go in the meeting and I'm still sitting outside. Even my mom goes inside. I was like, well, there's my ride. So I take about 10 minutes, finish my cigarette. I go in the door and my mom is sitting at the other end of the building. So I have to walk all the way through this circle to go and sit next to her. So I go and I sit next to her. 10 minutes into it while they're going around and they're doing these readings and all that stuff. I have never heard so many cuss words in a 10 minute span. Right. And I've been to the, some of the most divest bars ever and still not as many cuss words as this. So I look at my mom and I'm like, okay, well, I might be able to do this. Halfway through the meeting, I find out that this NA meeting is actually taking place in a drug rehab, right? And I find out that Brock guy works there. So I look at my mom and I was like, this is the place I want to be. This is the rehab I want to go to. So at the end of the meeting, me and my mom, we go up. I ended up leaving with the, the phone numbers from those three people that we talked to. And I called each and every one of them for like the first two weeks. I was calling them every day. And so Brock tells me, me and my mom that if we go in the next day and we talk to Mary Brewer, the owner of the facility, about getting a bed, he will advocate for me as long as I continue to show up to the meeting. So we go in the next day, um, me and my dad, we talk to Mary Brewer. She doesn't have any vacancies, but she was like, I'll put you on the waiting list. So I'm like, all right, you know, I'm feeling a little defeated a little bit. So me and my um, parents are starting to come up with another plan of action, right? So then the other idea is if I don't get into this rehab, I'm going to move back to Michigan for a little bit, stay with my brother Kyle, the one who I partied with most of my life, to get my life back in order, right? In my mind, that's not that bad of a plan. I may drink, I may do this stuff, but I doubt he'll let me do anything worse than that. So during this whole span of time over these next 10 days, I'm still going into New Beginnings Recovery Center every day. 
And I sit in that office. I wait to talk to somebody. I talk to the case managers. I talk to Mary Brewer. I talk to all these people. And they keep telling me, okay, we don't have an opening. We'll let you know. I'm like, all right, I'll see you tomorrow. And the last day, it was about a week and a half later. It was a Monday. I'm do my normal daily thing. I come in, I sit down, I say hi to everybody. At this point, I'm on a first name basis, you know, with everybody who works in the office. And Mary comes out and she looks at me. She's like, Evan, I appreciate your enthusiasm, but I still don't have a bed for you. I will let you know when I have a bed, you don't have to keep coming in. I'm like, all right, cool. I'll see you tomorrow. So my dad picks me up. He drops me back off at the house. He leaves to go back to work. I get a phone call from my mom 10 minutes later and she's like, Mary Brewer just called. She has a bed for you. She wants you to call her, but your dad's already turned around coming back to get you. You're going to guys are going to go up there and talk to him. So uh, we go back in there and I look at Mary and I'm like, thank you. I, I really appreciate it. And she's like, well, you are showing how much you really want to be here and how much you want this. So I just had a bed open up. I'm giving the bed to you. Can you be here at 9 a.m. tomorrow? And I'm like, yes, I can. Does this mean I got the scholarship? She says, no. Is that going to be a problem? My dad looked at her and was like, we'll figure it out. We'll see you in the morning. So that whole night, me, my mom, and my dad are online applying for loans left and right to try to get the $6,000 to pay for my treatment. Well, my mom finally got approved. right? So I go in the next morning check in at eight o'clock i'm there an hour early then when she asked and um just go to my room i kind of just stay in my room you know in there I, I don't know anybody i'm i'm nervous i have social anxiety started thinking inside my head was this the best idea did i make a mistake start getting a little edgy feeling like well i'm gonna pack my stuff and i'm probably gonna leave Next thing I know, Brock shows up to work, busts in the room. And he's like, come on, get up. You're not staying in here. I'm like, it's my first date. He's like, get up. You're not staying in here. So I was there for 30 days, completed the program, made a lot of friends. And that guy, Brock, ended up becoming my first sponsor after that. Um, after I got out of New Beginnings Recovery Center, I moved into one of her sober living houses. Um, I stayed there for a year. In that time, I end up starting a job at New Beginnings Recovery Center. Is this the place that's down over off of like uh, Orchard and like Broadway? Yes, it is. Cool. All right. Yep. Um, so I start working there. I start on a graveyard shift. <laughs> and I, Would you start as like a BHT? Yeah. Nice. Yep, just started to where I didn't have uh, very much client contact at that time because the whole time I was there, they were sleeping, which I was like, all right, this is not too bad. You know, I'm getting money taken out of my check every week that pays for my rent. I don't have to worry about any of that. So, the only thing I have to worry about is food. And well, at least I get one meal here before I leave in the mornings. So, I'm working at New Beginnings. Um, I end up going to this na cookout um with some friends from rehab you know you know some friends i was in treatment with some friends i got from sober living and that's where i met my wife at we met in recovery at this na meeting um i didn't really say anything to her uh, i was too nervous 
two. Um, I ended up waiting like another month before like messaging her on Facebook. Um, and that's how we started hanging out. Um, she was in another sober living. So she was in I Am Recovery. She was at the, uh, the Littleton house. Awesome. Um, so the whole time when I was in Mary's sober living, I, um, you know, was still working at New Beginnings Recovery Center. I ended up going to second shift. I became the second shift lead and acting supervisor over there. I was having a lot more client contact. I was training all the other um, BHTs over there. They called them client liaisons on all the treatments that they offered. So the low energy neurofeedback system, the sound lounge. I became a master, you know, at like, you know, working with the clients on that. So I started training all the other coaches to do that. Um, I end up proposing to, to my wife, Chelsea, um, and end up moving into I Am Recovery. Um, we, we spoke with Heidi and since we were, you know, shout out to Heidi. Yes. Love her. (laughs) So we spoke with Heidi and she allowed us to move in, you know, into the master bedroom and have our own space. We have our own bathroom. You know, we're paying the rent. Um, I'm buying my car from her. Um, so I'm making payments to her. And so we're there for about six months and we decide, you know, we're married now. Uh, we got married December 12th, 2020. Um, we're married now. I I have my son back in my life, you know, little by little, like I'm having, you know, only about once a week for about a couple hours because his mom was still really, really nervous, you know, really nervous about having, you know, our son in sober living, you know, she didn't really know much about, you know, sober living, you know, she was starting to be more educated on like recovery just because of everything that I put her through. So we decided we want our own space. So we move into an, our own two-bedroom apartment, and we start getting my son on the weekends. You know, he gets to start staying overnight. Um, I end up leaving in June of 2021, New Beginnings Recovery Center, and I start work at Golden Peak Recovery as a BHT, but what was so interesting is they called their BHTs recovery coaches, Mm. right? So I started working with them and I think after like a month, I was already promoted to the supervisor. Um, So I was working with the executive director as the super uh, recovery coaching supervisor and as partial acting facility manager. Since we didn't have a facility manager. And so me and him just kind of, his name was Chris Callen. We kind of split up all the little things to do and kind of just worked very well together. I was there for six months until they closed down. Um, Their main office decided to close down a lot of their smaller, you know, business models. So all of Colorado, all of California got closed down. So... I had done a little bit of research on a recovery coach and I found the Hornbuckle Foundation. So I put my application in, you know, to work with them online. And about 30 minutes later, Michael Hornbuckle calls me and was like, Hey, so you want a job? I'm like, yeah. He's like, cool. Do you want to come and, you know, do an interview and just kind of just talk? So I go and I talk to him and, 
he sees on my resume recovery coach, right? So he starts asking me all these questions about recovery coaching. And he's like, so where'd you do your training from? I'm thinking he's talking like BHT training. So I'm telling him all this. And he's like, is C car choices? And I'm like, huh? He's like, okay, so you're not a registered or licensed or recovery coach, nothing. I'm like, no. He's like, are you interested in becoming one? I'm like, yeah, actually, I, I kind of am. He's like, all right, so take the weekend, take your time, think about it, and then let me know if you're if you're really interested in it, and I'll you know get you registered for the classes. So I take the weekend, and yeah, I'll do it. So I end up. You know, see, this is March of 2022 so i do all the classes um i start working with you know some homebuckle clients little by little you know starting to do it i build up you know i think at one point i was working with 12 scholarship clients at a time and um you know I'm really, i was really loving it you know i was really loving the clientele I was loving the organization it's just you know i still needed more money to help pay the bills so that's when i applied for life continues recovery as a part-time recovery coach and the uh scholarships um director with the home foundation Brittany, sent me the information over about elevate recovery homes that they're looking for a coach so i submitted my resume at the same time as life continues and ended up starting working with elevate and life continues all within a, the same week and I was loving it. I was constantly busy. I was, you know, three days a week, I'm doing groups and doing one-on-ones with uh, Life Continues. I still have my clientele with the Hornbuckle. And then in the evenings, I'm running groups uh, with Elevate. I remember that first meeting that uh, when we came up to the Winona house, um, you had your beard, your beard was all long. Yes. Yeah, man. I remember <laughs> that vividly. And we were eating food. Um, yeah, man. I, I remember that. That was, seems like it's, been just like a few days since that time you know and that was what a year and a half ago so keep going keep going and that's funny you mentioned the beard because i remember a couple of the guys there just looked at me and i was like now i know why robbie hired you yeah. the beard and i was like hey. yeah you know beards run together so now, I was doing all of that work with all three organizations all the way through the beginning of 2023 and it was, oh, I want to say beginning of February of this year, I was going to the Winter Symposium with my supervisor with Life Continues. And that morning on the last day, I got a phone call from my mom. And I got some really devastating news. I was informed that my younger brother back in Michigan had committed suicide, you know, about five days before that. But nobody, you know, my sister and, you know, her parents back in Michigan didn't want anybody to know until, you know, like he was being taken off of life support. And that hit me really hard. You know, I remember sitting right there getting ready to leave and I just dropped down on my couch and just in tears. And my wife comes out, you know, she's getting ready for work and she gives me a hug and she was like, do you need to stay home today? And I'm like, no, being here and being alone is the worst thing for me. 
you know, I am going to be inside my head. I'm going to be depressed. This is the last day of the symposium. There is a dozen people there that know me and I have support there. I have more support there than I do just sitting at home. So I called my supervisor, um, Taylor, and I told him what was going on. And he even asked, he's like, do you, do you need to take the day? And I'm like, no, I, I need to be down there. So that whole day, I just felt like I was walking around in the fog, you know? Um, I mean, literally, I felt like I couldn't hear. I felt like I was looking through a foggy, you know, glass. And I just felt like I was just floating. And I just, I, I wasn't handling it very well. Um, I end up getting in touch with a therapist, um, Mark Putnoy, and I start working with him, you know, doing EMDR and cause I was on the very, very close of, you know, an emotional breakdown to where I had to step away from elevate and hornbuckle. Um, you know, I kept life continues part time. Um, I was the assistant manager at the time and I still needed some income coming in. So I kind of, you know, I was doing a lot of backend stuff, you know, they were kind of keeping me a little away from the clients, make sure I'm, I'm okay. And I'm working with my therapist and, you know, I came to the conclusion that, you know, especially with Elevate that I just felt like I wasn't in the best mind state to be able to work with, you know, the guys, I mean, they were are tremendous guys at Elevate. I really commend, you know, you and Rob, Rob, Robbie for what you guys do there, like they're, it's amazing. And I just felt like I just wasn't the best for them. So, you know, I, yeah, man, I mean, you got to take care of yourself. Like you can't, how can you help other people if, if you're, you know, feeling fucked up inside? So you gotta, you gotta take care of yourself first and foremost, you know? Yeah. You know, mental health and addiction, you know, always run hand in hand. Totally. You know? And, you know, I started noticing my addictive, you know, side coming back out. You know, I was starting to become isolated. I was starting to not reach out anymore and I just had to do something, you know? So I still really kept that, those, some close connections with some of the other eight guys, you know, totally. Bryce, Robbie and Brandon are amazing. I recommend to elevate to anybody, any man who's in recovery, looking for sober living. I always recommend them to come to elevate. Thanks man. Well, it takes people like you to, you know, we, to build a culture. Um, so that means a lot. I appreciate it. Yeah, of course. So I, uh, you know, I'm still working for, for life continues. Uh, we rebranded now to safe side recovery. Um, I actually just recently got uh, promoted to manager of recovery services. Like I think it was like last week actually. (laughs) So yeah, man, we're, uh, still a lot of backend stuff. Now I still do some coaching, you know, here and there do a lot of the outreach, um, run outreach booths at different locations, you know, just trying to be that initial introduction to recovery for a lot of the, the homeless population out there. That's awesome, dude. I love it. I know Justin has been listening to your story and thank you for sharing that. I mean, it's, you know, I didn't know all of the components of your story. And so it's good to, to kind of get some background and hear that. And, um, yeah, I mean, I know it's, it's tough and, and now you've kind of turned your struggles and your adversity into an outlet so that not only can you help other people, but now you're, you know, doing back end stuff for an organization that's having a ton of impact. So that's fucking awesome, dude. So Justin. Hey, I've got a couple of questions over here, mostly having to do with your personal relationships. I'm glad to 
I was going to ask you about your kid. I'm glad he's back in your life. That's fantastic. And it's obvious to me, my brother um, was like you when we were growing up, always getting in trouble. Um, you know, he would uh, push my mom's brand new car out of the driveway to go see a girlfriend and hit a moose and total it. And, and, and so I was surprised when you said that you're, it's, it's obvious your mom and dad love you. And I was surprised when you said that they were calling the cops on you because as, as bad as my brother was, I don't remember my parents ever calling the cops on him. Um, but, and then you said you got put on probation. Had you actually committed some crimes to get on probation or were your parents able to put you on probation? So at that time I wasn't committing crimes yet. So they put me on for, um, incorrigibility. So any parent can go and petition the courts to put them on probation as kind of like a scare tactic for them not wow. listening to the rules. So like I was like age 11 sneaking out, you know, sneaking out to go mm. hang out with friends and girls. Incorrigibility. I've never even heard that word. I need to look it up. I had no idea that, um, parents could do that to their, their kids. That's crazy. And it sounds like you obviously needed it because you, you weren't following the rules on probation. Yeah. Yeah. I, I definitely yeah. needed it. So my question is, is how has your relationship with your mom and dad changed in the last four and a half years since you've been in recovery? So I've been, you know, really working um, really hard, you know, over the past year almost to really start rekindling and rebuilding those relationships. So a few years ago, my mom and my dad split up because of my dad's drinking, like his drinking got worse and worse and worse and worse over the years to where, you know, he was given an ultimatum and he chose his addiction, you know, over it, which, you know, any, any addict who knows if you give an addict an ultimatum, they're going to choose you know, a substance over it, you know, nine out of 10 times. So over those, over, you know, these years, I've really built a relationship with my dad a lot up because, you know, when he retired, he just sat home drinking every day. So I would just go over and help him clean his apartment. Um, I would go to the grocery store for him. And the only stipulation that I had was, is just don't drink in front of me. You know, give me two hours while I'm over there to just not drink in front of me and drink in front of my wife, you know, because if you do drink, like I'm, I'm not going to come over. I'm not going to bring my son over so you can see your grandson. So, and he respected my wishes. You know, he knew I was in recovery. He knew, you know, I didn't want to be around that as much as I can, but my mom, that's still, you know, I'm still working on that. It's, it's gotten a lot better. Um, for my first year of recovery, my mom was, I was seeing my mom all the time. She was coming to that, still coming to that NA meeting she initially took me to every Sunday to where everybody there knew her. And she was always bringing like snacks and treats for the meeting. And, you know, she was coming to the church with me at New Beginnings and everybody knew her. Like it was getting to the point where everybody was calling her mom after that. And, over the last few years, you know, we've kind of drifted apart a little bit, but I still try to call and check in with her, you know, once a week or so and try to make plans with her and at least, you know, try to continue build, rebuilding that relationship. Good for you. And what is the, um, what is your vision for your relationship with your son? Oh, uh, if I have my way, I would have him every weekend. He would, you know, be this amazing, you know, cheerful kid. And for the most part, he is, you know, he, why, you know, I still have this big fear behind, you know, in the back of my head that 
even though my son was a year, you know, to 18 months when I was doing all this stuff, I still have this big fear that, you know, memories are going to come back up and resurface in his adulthood about all of that. And that's going to kind of, you know, mess him up. But, you know, I just continue to try to, to be the best dad that I can be, um, continue to, you know, be there for him and just do everything I can. Um, it's still to me, a learning, a big learning curve. He's almost eight years old now. And, you know, I missed three years of his life, you know? So it's like, I'm, I'm re getting to know my son all over again. And, you know, he's re getting to know his dad and, you know, I, I love it. He's still, he's still my little boy. He still wants to curl up in my arms. And, you know, I tell him all the time, I don't care if you're eight, 18, you're, I'm still gonna give you hugs and kisses. You're still gonna be my baby boy. That's fantastic. What's his name? Taz. Taz. Nice. And how, how, how is your relationship with his, with his mom? It's gotten a lot better. Um, we're cordial. Um, me and her never really had a relationship. It was more of we partied together a few times and had a kid be the result of it. Um, but we we co-parent very well. Um, she's gotten a lot more education on, you know, like I said, on recovery and addiction because of what I put her through. And, you know, she's always keeps an eye out for any signs of if I'm going to mess up or if somebody else in my life is going to mess up and bring, you know, that life back into him. And, you know, I work with her to try to like ease her mind, like, Hey, you know, I'm in recovery. I'm going to do everything in my power. So, you know, that doesn't happen, but I can never make any promises that I will never do it. Or, you know, somebody else in my life would never do it, but I can promise that I'll do everything to keep him away from it as much as I can. Yeah. Good for you. Awesome. Sweet. Yeah. I just wanted to know about your, your mom and, and, uh, and, and, and Taz. That's fantastic. Good job. Good job stepping what? up and being, being a dad. Yeah, man, definitely. It's, that's the, the fruit of life, right? Um, I'm getting ready to have a baby girl in February. Congratulations. Yeah, man, thanks. Super, super stoked. So I'm, uh, I'm excited to go down this parenting path with Kayla and super pumped on that. What, what piece of advice would you give somebody who is either going through active active addiction right now or you know was in that position where you went to a new beginnings and you kind of made that switch um what's the biggest piece of advice you could give for somebody like that never lose hope you know it doesn't matter how down you are it doesn't matter how bad you think your circumstances are there's always a way out of it you know, don't ever be afraid to reach out, ask for help. Don't ever be afraid to use your voice, you know, advocate for yourself. You know, that's one of the biggest things I learned for, you know, as a recovery coach is, is we are an advocate for our clients until they learn how to advocate for themselves, you know, and that's the biggest tool any addict has is, is being an advocate, be an advocate for yourself, express what your needs are, you know, be honest of where you're at. And be honest of where you want to be and how you can better yourself and how anybody else who is willing to help can help you. You know, accept the help. We are only as defeated as we allow ourselves to be. Well said, man. I think we'll end it there. Uh, Evan, dude, you are you're awesome. I really appreciate our friendship. I really appreciate what you do for this community. 
Uh, and I look forward to continuing to work with you and with SafeSide and the projects that we have coming up together is going to be awesome. We're going to do a lot of good. Um, and yeah, man, I, I really appreciate you coming on and sharing your story and being vulnerable and um, love you, man. So I appreciate you. I love you too, man. Thank you guys so much. This was an awesome experience and I will come back anytime you guys want Absolutely. me to. Absolutely. <laughs> we'll have you back on, man. We're going to do a group yeah, so podcast one of these days. Let yeah, me know. One of the things you said a lot was I'll do it. So uh, I wrote that down and put it in quotations. I like it. I'll do it. So I'll do it. I'll, yeah. I'm sure you'll be back. Love it, man. Thanks. <laughs>